Hello and welcome to episode 16 of the Rehumanized podcast. Welcome to the Rehumanized Podcast. Today, I have a very special jo- guest joining us on the show. His name is Sharif Kuzan. I met Sharif a few years ago at the Rehumanized Conference in New Orleans, and I think his story is just so powerful, and I am so grateful that he is willing to come on here and share it with all of you guys today. Sharif works with Witness to Innocence, the nation's only organization dedicated to empowering exonerated death row survivors to be the most powerful and effective voice in the struggle to end the death penalty in the United States. He himself was convicted on a murder charge and sentenced to die in the state of Louisiana when he was only 17 years old. Welcome, Sharif. Thank you. So I have heard your story before, and every time I think about it, it it just really blows my mind. Um, And so I don't... I don't even really know where to start, and so uh, I guess just how is it possible that you were sentenced to die at such a young age for a crime that you didn't commit? Uh, well, I, I think uh, during that time, we're talking uh, 25 years ago, I'm 42 now, so uh, we're talking about uh, 1994, 1995, uh, when the climate of the era was actually just about, you know, lock them up and throw away the key at, at any and all costs. Um, so I think if we kind of start there, uh, I mean, we can kind of understand what was going on during that time. You know, now we're in a time of, of more compassion and more reason and uh, and evidence that, you know, just locking people up and throwing away the key is really not the answer. And we're getting to see now uh, the, the, uh, the race uh, and agenda uh, discrimination in, in, in the criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. And so can we start at the beginning? What what happened back in 1994 that uh, caused you to get wrapped up in the criminal justice system? Uh, so again, I'm, I'm from New Orleans, Louisiana. And, and I have to just give you the, the backdrop so we can really just understand and get a clear picture. Uh, I'm from New Orleans, Louisiana. Uh, I'm the seventh of eight children. Uh, my we were born. I was born and and raised in in, in poverty in New Orleans. Uh, from the projects, low income family. So in 1994, um, New Orleans actually led the country in murder rate per capita and uh so in 1994 we had with new Orleans leading the nation in murder rate per capita we actually had police officers uh that were going to jail for murdering citizens uh, uh and so it was a whole bunch of uh crime and just institutionalized crime uh within the police department and da's office uh and when you think of new orleans you think about the French quarters. You think about Mardi Gras. Uh, you think about partying. Uh, we know that New Orleans is a tourist area, and that's how the city kind of uh, makes its income and survival for tourism. So when we think about uh, New Orleans and French quarters, 
And if a crime happens in the French quarters, then uh, it has to be solved quickly um, and at any rate necessary. So the crime that I was convicted of actually happened in the French quarters. And it was a white victim. Um, and so someone had to go down for this crime and someone had to go down for this crime fast. Now, during the same time, uh, when there was a lot of institutional uh, crime within police departments, the mayor's office also had a big push on on juvenile crime and something to do where juveniles don't get involved in crime. And so it was a big push with uh, with uh, the recreational basketball league, the parks, and you know, put money into gyms and so children can have somewhere to go. And actually, I had done that. And so um, I was playing for the North New Orleans Recreational uh, Basketball Team, the local park in my neighborhood for, for the kids. And actually, at the time the crime happened, I was actually playing basketball with the game on videotape. Mm -hmm. And while you're playing this game, obviously, several witnesses, both the players on your team and on the other team. Yeah, so we're talking about 15, 20 other children that were actually playing against me, uh, playing with me, uh, their parents, uh, other relatives. We're talking about referees. We're talking about a whole host of, of black people that were, that were there um, at, the, at the game that night. Uh, and so... The story, and I want to take you over on a timeline of the night of this crime. And I want to, uh, you know, well, a lot of times when, for us, when we're incarcerated, uh, you know, we have time to just think about every minute of, of that day that led up to our incarceration. And so I remember uh, we had a game that night. And I remember my coach picking me up from my home. And I had the luxury of uh, actually having my coach pick me up and drop me off because we actually live a block away from each other. Um, and so our game was actually scheduled, I want to say, for uh, 8 o'clock that night. Uh, and they had three other games that were scheduled before our time. They had the, uh, the I think, the 9- and 10-year-old game at, and then the 11- and 12-year-old game. And then a 13 and 14 year old game, and then our game, which was the 15 and the 16 year old game. Um, and unfortunately, all three games uh, lasted much longer than anticipated. Uh, all three games actually went into overtime that night. And so our game didn't start until about 9 o'clock that night and uh, in the Tremit Center. So this crime actually happened about, uh, the police said it happened between about 10-something, 10 10-15 that night in the French quarters uh, at the port call restaurant. Uh, there was a gentleman and his girlfriend uh, that were actually robbed at gunpoint. And uh, one of the perpetrators actually uh, pulled the trigger and blew the gentleman's brains out right in front of his girlfriend. Um, which I, I can imagine that's a very traumatic uh, situation and an incident that happened uh, for his girlfriend. And 
my heart actually goes out to her for even experiencing some trauma like that. So, fast forward, uh, when our game started at 9-something, our game wasn't over until about 10 o'clock, 10-15. And we had like a 10 or 15 minute pep talk after the game. And then uh, the coach had to drop uh, three other gentlemen off and drop myself off last because, like I said, I live about four houses down from him in the next block. And so every time I caught a ride, I was, I'm, I'm going to always be the last one to be dropped off before the coach go right home. Uh, and so I didn't get home until uh, between 10, 45, 11 o'clock, somewhere within that time. Um, and so it was totally impossible for me to be in two places at one time. Mm-hmm. So, um, I learned that my my I learned that I was actually and I don't say uh, I was wrongfully convicted. I never use that term wrongfully convicted uh, because that term is really broad. Uh, you know, wrongfully convicted can mean you know someone mistakenly identified you, uh, uh, some kind of mistake in the process. When you know you can be mistakenly be wrongfully convicted. And so I actually used the term I was I was framed uh, because there was some intentional uh, things that were done from the onset by the police department and then perpetuated further by the district attorney's office. So I totally raised that term that I was wrongfully convicted and used the right term, which was framed because frame is there was some there was some intent, um, premeditated intent. So now. I want you to think about the crime happening at 10-something. And uh, the witness said that there was three perpetrators uh, that robbed uh, her boyfriend and blew his brains out and then ran. And so uh, these three gentlemen ran around a corner and jumped in a getaway car and sped away. And when the police came, his girlfriend gave a statement that night and said that uh, that she couldn't identify any perpetrators that night, and uh, she was visibly shaken up. Uh, and the police officer wrote that she was crying, visibly shaken. She couldn't talk, uh, but she did say she could not identify the perpetrators. So. At the same time, what didn't come out to us was that these three individuals ran around a corner, jumped in a getaway car, and sped away. What they didn't tell us about was, uh, when, you, when you think about the French Quarter, you, you see these on a, you know, on a, during Mardi Gras, these big, tall balconies, you know, and, and folks are standing on these big, tall balconies um, and, you know, throwing beads, and this is just a party. Um, these are actually people's homes where they have the big, tall balconies. People actually live in those homes. And so there was this gentleman um, who said that he was sitting on his porch with binoculars and he was uh, he was doing bird watching uh, with his binoculars. And he said that he heard a gunshot. And when he heard a gunshot, he saw the three individuals actually run and get in, jump in a car that was parked right below his balcony. So he said that he took his binoculars and put them down 
and actually uh, got the license plate of the car that was speeding away. So I'm no, uh, uh, you know, and so then, uh, so on the night of the crime, the police department from the 911 log actually had the license plate of the getaway car and and put it out for for the police to 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 look for this car on the night of the crime. Uh, then uh, three days later, someone called Crime Stoppers and gave a tip uh, with three individuals' name uh, that was possibly uh, associated with the murder. Neither name was mine. So three days after the crime, I'm no. You know, I'm no detective, but I, you know, I do watch CSI, watch NCIS, and and they have much more evidence to go off of. I mean, much less evidence to go off of than a detective had. Three days later, he has a uh, the light plate getaway car and three names of individuals, not mine, that he can follow up with. So this detective actually found the car. Uh, that fit a description and the license plate of the same car uh, that the witness gave. Um, and it belonged, the car belongs to one of uh, the mother of one of the gentlemen that someone called Crime Stoppers on. So, I mean, that's a direct correlation of something's going on. Like, this witness who got the license plate and you got a Crime Stoppers tip three days later. And, it, and the car belonged to one of the, the mothers of the, someone called Crime Stoppers on one of the three gentlemen. I mean, this detective uh, questioned all three of the gentlemen. One gentleman said, hey, I was smoking weed that night. I don't know what I was doing. I was high. The other gentleman said that he was with his girlfriend that night. Uh, the detective followed up with that. His girlfriend said he wasn't with her. And the other gentleman said that he was home babysitting his nieces and nephews. And so, unbeknownst, I don't know what happened, this detective was taken off of the case two weeks later, and another detective was placed on a case. And when this other detective was placed on a case, all of a sudden, he get a Crime Stoppers tip. And the Crime Stoppers tip says it was Sharif. Sharif Kuzan is the one that committed that murder. And so that was three weeks later. He gets a crime stopper tip on me. Now let me back up a little bit because I want you to. I want to hold us right there. When the girlfriend on the night of the crime said she she was visibly shaking and she couldn't identify anyone, a detective followed up with her three days later at her home. Let her calm down. Went to her home to take another statement from her after she calmed down. In this statement, uh, she went further to say that she wore glasses. She didn't have her glasses on that night. She didn't have her contacts on that night. It was dark, uh, and she couldn't identify anyone. Uh, she did say that, like, it looks like uh, Mike, the, the perpetrator was uh, was right at Mike's height. Uh, a little bit taller than Mike. Uh, and she said that she just gets shapes and images from her imagination. 
and she would never be able to identify anyone. At the time of my arrest, I was three inches shorter than my at the time, which was the victim. And that statement was never given over to us at the time um, of my trial. And she came to trial and looked at me and pointed at me and said, may God forgive you because I never will. And she said that she was 100% poverty if that was the one um, uh, that, could, that, that killed her boyfriend at the time of, of the crime. Uh, now, when I say friend, I'm going to go back. That statement was never given to us by the police. Uh, the police uh, actually, uh, and I'm going to fast forward, the crime stopper tip that said it was Sharif, it was actually the detective that called Crime Stoppers and received the, the reward money and put my name as the person uh, for Crime Stoppers so he can begin to build a case towards me. And so after he after he got that Crime Stoppers tip, he was able to take my picture out of a lineup uh, and give it to uh, the girlfriend and actually coerce her to say, yes, I'm the one. Um, and, and like, I say that because uh, I put myself in the shoes of, of the girlfriend. Uh, if a traumatic experience like that happens to me, and I'm putting my trust in, a, in the system, and if a detective comes to me and say, I think this is the one, and then you begin to take my picture of my face and put it in that traumatic event that happened to you and then you believe to you begin to believe that um and then after a while you begin to associate my face with that crime and you begin to believe it wholeheartedly uh, and so i can i can understand that yeah this and, is something that comes up a lot in exoneration cases for death row or, or otherwise even just for other crimes that we think of eyewitness testimony as some of the strongest that there could ever be you know if if you saw something you saw it and then you can just repeat that to the jury and that's the truth um but you know you don't even really have to have malicious intent to try to to try to frame someone as as a victim or you know a surviving victim yes to um, to really get it wrong. And I think that's kind of hard for us to wrap our minds around sometimes because we think that, you know, all of our senses are perfect. And, you know, if, if we see something, we're not going to have, you know, a cop trick us into changing our mind about what we think we saw. But it, it does happen. And it, it happens pretty regularly within the criminal justice system. It does. It, 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 really, it really does. So, uh, you know, a lot of people ask me, how do I feel about uh, the person who who so wholeheartedly um, point the finger at me, and I just tell people that uh, that person has been victimized twice, um, and, and and my and I'm I'm never I was never angry at her because I understood uh, I can't imagine how she felt um, to have someone uh, actually get their brains blown out standing right next to her um i can't even i can't even imagine that um so one thing uh, you know so now we're talking about 
uh, me being arrested three weeks later uh, with no evidence, just someone saying that it's me. Um, so here I am arrested for murder at 16. And to be totally honest, uh, we didn't find out that I was actually at a basketball game until about uh, 30 days later uh, of me being incarcerated. Uh, because, I mean, when you didn't do anything, it's not like everybody walks around with a notepad in their pocket writing down everything that they're doing every minute of the day waiting for them to get framed for something. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. So, uh, at the time of my arrest, only thing I can say is that, like, hey, I didn't do it. I, I, don't, I don't know where I was because I, I, I really didn't know what I was doing uh, on March the 2nd as opposed to here I am being arrested on March 27th. I don't know what yeah, I was Not doing. to mention you were a 16-year-old kid at this time. You know, exactly. it's not like... I, I think at that point, I could call anything. I didn't know what I was doing. I don't know what I was doing. And so, um, it wasn't nothing but the uh, the grace of God that actually saved my life. Because uh, the reason we found out I was at a basketball game was because uh, my coach said that he was just at home one night talking to his wife. And, uh, and, uh, uh, and he said, he told his wife, he said, baby, I don't think Sharif committed that murder. He just wasn't that type of kid. And he said his wife told him, well, hey, why don't you go check the basketball records? Because that night when you came in, uh, almost 11 o'clock, um, and we had an argument because that night was their actual anniversary. And, uh, and, and. You know, the, here we are. We usually get home about nine o'clock from games. Nine thirty, he usually get home, and here he is walking into their home on their anniversary night at eleven o'clock at night, and he's been gone all day. Um, and so he and his wife had got into a little argument, and he said that his wife told him, "Well, babe, maybe it was that night that you that you came home at eleven o'clock," and he said that he just went in to go check the records, and sure enough, that was the night of the murder the same night of the anniversary that he came home, that he came home 11 o'clock that night. And so um, he was just kind of overjoyed, you know, called my family, uh, called the the the, uh, the police department. I mean, called my attorney. And my family even called the police department, called the DA's office, like, hey, you know, we have this evidence that he couldn't have committed this crime. Uh, and so... Uh, my coach went further and tracked down some of the teammates and uh, parents and actually found one parent who had actually video recorded the game on, you know, the old VHR video cassette uh, tape. And so now we have a video of the game and we were just overjoyed, like, hey, let him out. He didn't commit the murder. And you would think that if you have all this evidence, then, hey, you would think that the DA's office uh, would say that, look, you know what, we we have it wrong. We made a mistake. We need to let this kid go, right? Um, That's what I would think. <laughs> they didn't do that. They begin. They begin to uh, like they have to convict me at all costs. Um, so my coach. Uh, uh, Gave my attorney all the evidence, the the score sheet, um, everything, 
uh, in the DA's office actually talked to my teammates. Uh, they actually talked to the referees of the game. They actually talked to the scorekeeper. They spoke to everyone that, uh, that of the information that we gave them. So instead of them dismissing a charge against me, they still brought me to trial. Now, that's why I said that I was framed and I wasn't wrongfully convicted. So now, we have a, uh, on the day of my trial, uh, when it was time for the defense to call our witnesses, uh, we, we went to lunch at maybe uh, noontime. We took lunch to go to break. There was my teammates, you know, at least about 15 kids in the hallway waiting to testify. And then we went to lunch, and they were all out there. When we came back from lunch, uh, the the judge told my lawyer, defense, call your first witness. So we called one of my teammates. The bailiff went out in the hallway, came back, and said that witness is not out there. The judge said, well, defense, call your next witness. So we, went to, we began to call all of the kids. None of them were out there. I had no teammates or opposing kids in the hallway. Um, and so now my attorney is scrambling, uh, and we're putting on a defense and I was at a basketball game, yet I don't have any teammates or no other children that's testifying that I was at the game. Um, so if I was on a jury, this whole defense would look, just look, you know, it's, it's, yeah. you know, what is this? You understand what I'm saying? And so we later found the next we, the next day one of my investigators went, went to all of the kids' home and a kid said, Hey, we didn't get home till eleven or twelve o'clock that night. We were all sitting in the prosecutor's office all day and all night. No one ever told us nothing. So here we are at twelve o'clock in the afternoon, and these kids sat in the DA's office for until nighttime, until and uh, we found out that the DA actually, um, this is kidnapping, put all our witnesses in his office and prevented them from testifying. And every time we called the witness, they were sitting at the prosecutor's table and never once told us that they had put a minute in the office. Never once did they do yeah. that. And they all knew that sitting at the table. They all they knew that. Go out of the room. Try to find another kid. That's that's insane. I mean, it's just it's textbook prosecutorial misconduct. It's just so egregious that 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 could have been going on. And and I think something about your case that's important to remember is that like you're not a very old man. This this isn't something that was going on in the 30s or the 50s or the 60s. This was in our lifetime. This was in the 90s. In the 90s, and I was 16 years old. We're talking about a kid that 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 the system is conspiring to kill a kid. Um, and uh, so at, at my motion for new trial, we actually put the, the DA on the stand to ask him, why didn't you tell us that you had put these witnesses in your office? And we put him on the stand, and his response was that uh, he put him in his office because it was cold outside, I mean, it was hot outside, and he wanted them to get some air in his in his office. What he didn't say uh, was that in January of 1996, this was the coldest winter in New Orleans history. 
So he must have forgotten that point. So he said that I put him in my office so that because it was hot in the hallway and I wanted them to catch some air. Um, and then he further stated that, uh, and I had we have this in black and white, that if you would have asked me where they were, I would have told you. But yet you were hearing us call our witnesses to the stand and the bell coming in and saying that they're not there and you didn't say a word. Um, and he and we further asked him, why didn't he turn over the statement that the, the eyewitness made three days later? Who said that she didn't have her contacts and she didn't have her glasses on and she couldn't see these individuals. And yet he allowed her to get on the stand and say she's 100% sure without a doubt that I'm the one uh, that she saw on the night of the crime. We asked him about why he didn't give us that statement. And he said that he didn't think that statement was relevant to help his case out. <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, that's not just we're not saying that he needs to to give you that information as, as a favor. He's legally required to provide the defense with that information. Yeah. It's, it's just, yeah, I think your, your framing of it as being framed is accurate. Correct. And, and so, uh, and then we, we later learn, uh, we later learn after I was on death row, because there was a $10,000 reward out for, uh, anyone in, uh, for the killer to be captured in this case, uh, we later learned while I was on death row that the detective actually uh, collected the ten thousand dollar reward money and built the case on me. And then after I was convicted, uh, he sent a letter to Crime Stoppers saying that had had they not gotten had he not gotten that tip, this case would have never got resolved. So we have that letter he sent to Crime Stoppers, uh, and so. His wife actually told on him that he got the ten thousand dollar reward money. <laughs> Good for her, I guess. But yeah, and so moving forward, you you eventually did get exonerated for this crime, um, but you spent a good amount of your life in prison for this crime that you didn't commit. Yes, uh, I actually spent uh, almost eleven years in prison. Uh, because at the time uh, I was arrested for murder, um, they have sometimes police departments have what you call when they have crimes that they can't solve. So uh, when they get a high-profile case, sometimes they begin to put other crimes on you. So now at the same time, when I was arrested for the murder and put on TV, a block away from the murder scene in the French Quarter, another gentleman was robbed, and. And when I was on TV, they got this gentleman to call and say, hey, I'm the one that robbed him. And so now I was arrested for robbery and a murder in a French quarters a block away. Now, if you're a tourist and you've been to the French, to New Orleans uh, a couple of times, you probably know more about the French quarters than I do. Because as a kid, uh, if you're from New Orleans, there's nothing in the French Quarter as a kid that's for me. There's nothing there. Uh, and so I think as a kid, I've probably been in the French Quarters at the, at the time when I was 16, probably once or twice in my entire life uh, on a school field trip. So is that like, here I am being arrested for a robbery and a murder that I didn't commit. 
Uh, and so I spent a, a portion, almost 11 years in prison for, for crimes I, I didn't even commit. That's, I mean, that's that's so upsetting. And I think with your case, it it is more striking um, because it was, uh, you know, in Louisiana, you happen to be in one of the states that still has the death penalty and in one of the counties that pushes for the death penalty. So, and because of the demographics involved, likely, um, we know from the statistics that, you know, a black perpetrator, I don't know if we've mentioned that, but you are African-American, um, and with a white victim that you, you are more likely to, to get that sentence. Um, but you know, this sort of prosecutorial misconduct and police misconduct, um, this goes on, not just with capital cases, this is going on, um, sort of across the board. And I think that th that's important to remember when we talk about the death penalty, because it sort of sticks out the most in your mind with these cases because the stakes are so high, um, you know, yeah. the highest they could possibly be. We're threatening to kill you. Um, but, you know, this is not this is not one problem with one DA's office. Um, and, you know, they cleaned out after the 90s. Um, this this is still things that we need to be concerned about moving forward. Yes, it, 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 it really is. Um we just recently, as as uh, recent as two weeks ago, a week and a half ago, actually, uh, we just, uh, for the first time in maybe 50 years in this city, uh, we actually have a progressive district attorney um, that I am happy to say I also worked on my, my defense team to uh, actually exonerate me from death row. Um, he is now the, the, the district attorney of uh, Orleans Parish of New Orleans. And uh, so just for the first time in, in my lifetime, uh, that there is some hope in the way we look at capital cases now. And so I want to I wanna go back to that you at... You know, you were 16 when the crime was committed, um, 17, I think, when you eventually went to, to prison. Um, what was it like for you to be so young? I, I can't even imagine, you know, a, a child in in prison, in, I believe, an adult men's prison, right, um, sort of being treated, being treated the way that you, you were. Uh, I, can, I can say that... Uh, it was very traumatic for me. Uh, prior to me even going to death row, being uh, by myself in isolation, prior to that, I was in general population uh, before my conviction. Um, and uh, I've witnessed uh, other young men raped. Uh, I've witnessed a lot of violence. Um, I witnessed having to become a man way for me on my time for survival. Uh, uh, even uh, I have stab wounds in the back of my head for being stabbed with with uh, with handmade knives. Uh, it was very barbaric prior to me even uh, physically barbaric prior to me going to death row uh, and going to death row. We're talking about another kind of mental trauma. Um, just seeing and witnessing 
executions of men that were uh, perfectly healthy uh, and knowing that one day I'll be facing the same punishment or, or the same fate. Um, being a child, being 17, uh, not being able to uh, ever experience some of the normal things that a lot of people in, in life have experienced uh, may like uh, just as uh, something trivial as a high school graduation or a high, uh, or high school senior prom. Um, those are some things that I would never experience um, as, at, you know, in the time I was supposed to experience them. Uh, just doing some of the normal things, uh, you know, going through girlfriends after girlfriends, uh, partying, uh, experiencing liquor, these, the, the normal things you do doing normal emotional and uh, psychological maturity. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, uh, while other children were just doing normal teenage things, I was thinking whether or not I'm going to live or die for something I didn't commit. That's something uh, that even now that I deal with. Uh, a lot of times, you know, when you're going through those years of maturity, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, you're figuring out, you know, where, you know, what you like to do in life or where you, where you want your life to be headed at. Uh, here I am, uh, 42, and I'm still figuring out uh, what is it that I, that I enjoy in life. Uh, so it's... That experience will have a lifelong uh, effect on on uh, my life and and just the, my outlook on life. Um, I take life more serious than the normal person would. Um, uh, yeah, and I mean, you were forced to to not just think about but to experience death you know, over and over again throughout your adolescence, um, really, in your young adulthood. That is just so, I, I think traumatic was the word you used, and I think correct. And so for me, it's just every day is, every day is more, uh, to be honest, uh, I have children. I have four children. Uh, every day now is just more about me preparing uh, for my own debt to make sure my children are, are taken care of. Um, it's not, a, it, you know, like, oh, it's just not about even enjoying my life. It's just about making sure my my my, my heirs are taken care of. You know, if you understand what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think that's important, an important point to bring up because I think supporters of the death penalty might hear about you know, the exonerees, the fact that, you know, every once in a while, maybe some innocent people get put on death row. But when you hear stories of people like you, maybe it's easy to think, well, that's fine because we catch them. You know, we, we figure out that we made a mistake and then we, uh, we free them and then, you know, no harm, no foul. But there is harm. There's lasting harm from going through this experience for anyone. Um, you know, kind of whether or not you're guilty, honestly, it's still really traumatic to inflict this on someone who has committed the crime. Um, it's, it really is 
you know, it's not... The fact that you're not in prison for this anymore doesn't mean that what happened to you is over. You know, it's still something that you deal with. You still are never going to get that part of your life back. And that that's just so important to remember, I think. And, and I, I'm glad you brought up your point. Uh, because my case is uh, the only case in Louisiana history where a prosecutor was actually disciplined uh, by the Bar Association for Prosecutorial Misconduct. Um, so if you think about all of the cases that came out of Louisiana uh, for prosecutorial misconduct, no prosecutor was ever disciplined by the Bar Association for their conduct, uh, only the prosecutor in my case. So everything I told you about his misconduct, you would think that this, this prosecutor would have gotten disbarred. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, unfortunately, he received a two-month suspended sentence from practicing law for almost killing and, and conspiring to kill an innocent 16-year-old kid. A two-month suspended sentence. Um, and in, in, the, in the Louisiana Supreme Court ruling in that case, uh, they were talking about previous uh, attorneys, uh, one attorney who was uh, disbarred because they, uh, they beat a client out of $250 and it caused a negative thing on a client's credit report. Uh, I mean, it was so many instances where attorneys were disbarred for mon monetary issues, but yet... Uh, to conspire to kill a kid, they say that there was no harm that was done to me. And that's in their ruling. That no harm was ever done to me because I'm free from death row. No harm was done to me. Yeah. Like if he succeeded, then there might have been harm with your exactly. death. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's just stunning. Um, and I guess... I guess the next question is just what do we do moving forward for for people like you, for people who are um, framed or wrongfully convicted, um, currently on death row and perhaps innocent, um, and for the people who who get out? Because you know, as we've mentioned, it's not it's not over once you get out. Um, the harm the harm is still is still happened. Um, I know Witness to Innocence does some good work with uh, trying to get compensation for victims of the criminal justice system. Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, so there is no quick compensation. Some of us get compensated, some of us don't. Uh, I'm, I'm one that did not get compensated uh, uh, after my exoneration. Um, and unfortunately, uh, that people may think the misconception is that, oh, well, he's been or she's been exonerated. Uh, they're going to be millionaires. The state will give them all of this money and they'll live a happy life. That's the biggest misconception. Uh, the, the majority of us never get compensation. Uh, so when people think that, uh, that, oh, their life will be all right, that's, that's, that's much further from the truth. Uh, we have exonerees that become homeless. Uh, 
that have no place to go. Uh, I mean, it's a whole host of of just uh, things after the exoneration, life after exoneration, uh, and so we 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 travel around the country, um, and we do we fight uh, legislation to get compensation. Uh, just small things uh, like uh, like housing. I think that uh, if you've been exonerated from death row. Uh, what hurt would it do the 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 government to provide uh like a like a, a housing voucher um uh, to help a person that's been exonerated you know so I was never exon I was never compensated yeah uh, I mean that's a, that's a pretty low bar for you know stealing years of your life trying to kill you um, at least maybe give me somewhere to live after this would be helpful I mean it it's just it's just so unbelievably cruel, the fact that, you know, so many people, yourself included, have all of this happen to you and then are essentially just thrown out onto the street. I mean, it, it's shocking because it's not like when you're you're incarcerated, you're saving up for a house or you're, you know, really able to make the, the connections to get a job right afterwards um, unless, you know, you sort of go into the line of work that you're in of advocating, um, which is also very hard to do. It, I think, of course, obviously, there should be some form of, of compensation. Um, and I think a housing voucher is the bare minimum the state could provide as an apology. Yes. Uh, I was never, I didn't even receive an apology. And I think what, what we fail to understand or forget um, is that uh, no one actually wins uh, because not only are we victims of the system, uh, but our families have suffered um, and became victims. Uh, the the families of the victims uh, to to believe that the system had the right person, and for the family of the victims to think that they have closure, only to realize that. Uh, the system, in my case, lied to them. Uh, I mean, it's there's been there's trauma and victimization on their part as well, um, because we never talk about the victims' families when a person has been exonerated from death row. They kind of they they're kind of like forgotten or or made out to be these bad people themselves. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, so. And, and, you know, no one wins because it has taken hundreds of thousands of taxpayers' money that went into uh, faulty prosecution and police work. So, I mean, everybody loses. Yeah, I mean, not to mention keeping you housed on death row for yeah. that long. That that costs a lot of money. Um, and, you know, the, the, the taxpayer burden is not necessarily the reason we shouldn't be picking up random children um poor black children and sentencing them to death but it's it's at least one reason to maybe reconsider how we are uh, approaching these issues of criminal justice and, and crime stopping exactly um so i think we kind of forget about all these different factors uh, and there is like what happens now to the victims' families? There is there counseling for them. 
uh, what happened to our family, you know, there's nothing, you know, we talk about these abstract things of trauma and and families that of, of those been exonerated dealing with trauma and the the reintegration of the person back into the community. I mean, all the different these these theoretical things that we talk about, uh, but and but we never even have a practical way of, of actually doing it. Um, and and so at the end of the day, like. Um, it's just a vicious cycle um, that just been perpetuated and perpetuated over and over again. Um, and, and a lot of times we don't even we don't even talk about the daily things that that just hurtful to us or or decrying nights. We don't even talk about those things because uh, for me it's it's just hurtful to even sometimes uh, to think about again, you know. And I do interviews because these interviews for me are therapeutic. Uh, the more I talk about it, uh, the more it helps me to deal with it. Um, and I remember a lot of people ask me, am I angry? Uh, you know, I don't sound angry. And I always say, you know, I'm pissed. But for me and for my own mental sanity, uh, I have to channel my anger into something positive because, uh, you know, without that, then, you know, I wouldn't be able to survive. And for those that actually um, believe in a death penalty, I think this whole death penalty is just about, it's just about vengeance and, uh, and forgiveness. And I tell folks that, you know, if you're a real Christian, uh, then you have to learn how to forgive. And until we learn how to actually forgive, then it's just it's just theoretical. Um, and so maybe about the, my whole 10 years in prison, I say to myself, if I ever run across the prosecutor again, and I would be in jail for assault because... I'm gonna beat the hell out of him, uh, and I and, and I and in prison I just had these visions of just walk walking across in him and and fighting him and taking all my anger on him because what you've done to me I want you to feel the physical pain. And fast forward, it was about maybe 2014, 13, uh, that I was working uh, for the city of New Orleans for the mayor's office. As the uh, in workforce development, helping those with convictions gain employment, and I was working with a reentry program, and I had a meeting with one of the local criminal justice judges, and I'm in her courtroom, and I'm sitting in a jury box, uh, and I'm waiting for her to finish a few more court sessions so we can go in her chambers and have our meeting, and as I'm sitting in her jury box. I see the prosecutor who prosecuted me. Now he's a, a, a local defense attorney. And this is this was my first time seeing him since my trial. And we're talking about 15, let me see, almost 20 years ago. Um, and he looked at me and he looked me right in my eyes as he was standing at the lectern and at the podium. And 
I looked at him and I saw the nervousness in him. And he was finished in 10 minutes and with his client. And I remember him picking up his briefcase and was trying to hurry out of the courtroom. And I remember, I remember me picking up my, my briefcase and I'm, and I'm moving kind of fast uh, to the outside of the courthouse. And we actually meet up outside the courthouse. And he looked at me and said, Sharif, listen. Uh, and I was a young prosecutor then. You know, uh, I'm sorry everything that happened to you. And at that moment, I began to cry. And I hugged him. And I said, don't worry about it. I forgive you. And so here it is. He and I stand in the hallway. Both of us are crying. And I'm telling him I forgive him. And, and at that moment, a lot of my pain and suffering, I felt it just leave me. And I felt a burden um, that he was also carrying. And, and, and I understood what forgiveness really felt like uh, and from that moment on like I was no longer upset or hurt uh, with at him for what he has done uh, and I understood that like like if we can forgive then I'm not saying that the action of a guilty person if they did commit the murder on death row I'm not saying that what they've done is is actually, you know, a clean slate. But if we forgive, then we put that burden back on the individual for whatever transgression they have committed. And we are no longer uh, carrying that vengeance, thinking if I if if you die, then I'm going to be okay. Because that's all the death penalty is, is 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 vengeance. Uh, and so, if we be if we can learn how to forgive in our hearts, I think we'll be looking at this cold capital punishment in a whole other lens, if you understand what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. I, I think that is so powerful. I mean, thank you. Thank you, Sharif, for for being willing to not just come on this podcast, thank you for that, but for being willing to to talk so candidly about these issues. Um, and I'm, I'm glad to hear that it's therapeutic for you because it's, I, I think it's really important and powerful for people to hear these stories um even for people who may already oppose the death penalty but to remind them of this human element beyond the statistics because if you just look at the statistics and the sort of facts about the death penalty which um, we've talked about on this podcast before it it's kind of like yeah okay sure i'm against the death penalty whatever mark it down as one of my political opinions but it's easy to not be really passionate about this issue until you hear the stories of the people affected by it. Um, and so I'm so grateful that you are willing to come on the show um, and that you've spoken at Rehumanized conferences before. I hope to have you again sometime in the future, perhaps. Um, I'm, I'm so grateful that you are. I'm so grateful to be a partner in this work for you. Yeah, I, I mean, thank you for having me. Uh, again, like I said, this is therapy for me. And so um, whatever I experienced and had gone through, if it can help just one person uh, or, or change the course of one individual life, 
then my whole experience hasn't gone in vain. So thank you for having me. Thank you. Is there anything else you want to share before we wrap up? Oh, no, that's it. Okay. Well, everyone, make sure to follow uh, Witness to Innocence on social media. You can find their website at witnesstoinnocence.org. Thank you again so much, Sharif, and thank you to everyone for listening. All right. Thank you. You have a nice day. Thanks for tuning in to the Rehumanize podcast. To learn more, check out our website at rehumanizeintl.org or follow us on social media at rehumanizeintl.